Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Um, I almost said .com. Just plain old that early childhood nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santy. I was just bragging about how nerdy and normal I feel. And then I fucked it up right out of the gate. I love that though. Oh my God. So, oh, there's Richard. Richard Cohen is here. Oh, hi. <laughs> That's who you're hearing if you're not watching the video. Um, uh, so, you know what? Before we jump in, I want to start with this because, and I did, I forgot to run this by you, Richard, but um, yes, I want to give everybody an update on on how I'm doing since I've talked about chemo and I, you know, told all the listeners in, in August that I had the diagnosis. So I thought I'd just give a quick update. I finished chemo two months ago. Today was my last chemo treatment. Yay. Yay, I know. And then I had surgery in December, um, which, uh, the, the lab results indicated no evidence of disease and it was a complete response. Yeah. Yay. So, um, so that's great. They said even in the the part they removed, uh, even in that lump, there was not a little, even a little bit of cancer in there anymore. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty good and um, appreciate everybody's understanding when episodes were not as um, forthcoming during that time, um, or if I sounded stupid during that time, <laughs> sticking with and co- not only coming back, but have so, I mean, the numbers just kept increasing in the fall of people who were downloading. So that was great. So I'm going to start some radiation next week, do that for a few weeks. And uh, I have like a maintenance thing that I do every three weeks till August. And then I'm all done. So oh, thank God. Yeah. I'm excited about it. That is uh, the best news I've heard in a long, long time. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. I, um, I was just talking, um, well, just to Steve, my husband, um, about this. Cause I'm feeling so normal now. Um, when I was doing chemotherapy, I felt like this isn't really that bad. I mean, I feel sick, but it's not that bad. I should be getting so much more done and I should be able to do so much. And I couldn't, I just, you know, I maintained work as much as I needed to. And we did a, you know, some recording and now that I'm feeling normal again, I remember it differently. And I'm like, how did I do anything that was miserable? (laughs) So anyway, I'm excited to be where I am grateful for everyone who um, supported me in whatever way that was while I was, while I was doing chemotherapy and I'm grateful for science. Yay. Yay. Yay for (laughs) science. All right. So now Richard and I are going to shift into real podcast mode. Okay. And, um, and we're going to talk about professional love. You, you may remember we did an episode a couple of months ago, a month or so ago. I think it probably was just a month, month or so um, about an article that Carol Garbon Murray had published in this most recent issue of exchange 
magazine and it's about professional love. And um, we had a big conversation, but Richard wasn't able to be part of that one. So, so he's back. Um, So the article's there. If you want to find it on um, exchanges website, you can get up to free, free downloads before you have to pay for anything. Um, But I'm going to actually use a quote to start our conversation. That is from one of the books that she cites and refers to in this article. So the book is called theorizing feminist ethics of care in early childhood practice. It's edited by Rachel Langford, but this quote comes from um, one of the essays called cultivating ethical dispositions in early childhood practice for an ethics of care by Jeff Taggart. Um, I'll try to read the quote better than I read the title, but here we go. Um, So Jeff Taggart says, the implication is that if we can reconceptualize the capacity for love, caring, and intimacy as ethical dispositions, the way is then open toward cultivating such dispositions in professional programs. So the idea in the article really was that for a while we've, we've thought there are people who believe that we have to be sort of clinical to be professional. And that made the, the subject of love, the expression of love sort of subject to um, criticism when in our work with young children and that we need to move away from that because we know that that love is a crucial piece of the relationships that are so important. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so um, I'll, so start Richard, why, what are your thoughts? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, I could sum it up in one word, my response to what you just said. Boo. Boo. Yes. Boo. Okay. Um, Because you know, as, as Carol said in the article, as you all talked about on your last podcast, there's, and for my money, there, which I don't have a lot of, there's um, nothing more important to do as an early childhood professional than to give and receive love. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the foundation for everything. But um, I get why, and we can talk a little bit more what we can uh, postulate, why that's sure. not been... <laughs> Good, Richard. You used a big word. Yeah, it is a good um, word. Good big word. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, why we haven't used that word? Why we've been resistant to it? Mm-hmm. But I guess I want to, because it's one of my favorite pastimes. I want to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. Because you read the full book, and I have not yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that Carol's book of care, and this book talks about the ethics of care. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so in this book, how do they, how do they define ethics? And, you know, <laughs> in that, I know that's a much bigger than we could get into, but in that, the beginning of that quote, if you could read it again yeah. or something, it says, um, if we could reconceive of the ethics. And so I'm wondering how so do they define ethics and how have we been conceiving it that hasn't included love and care? Yeah. So he's, he's talking about ethical dispositions um and maybe there's a, a dis- distinction to be made i sound drunk i'm really not <laughs> maybe there's a distinction to be made between um straight out ethics and the ethical dispositions um so an ethical disposition is a way of being right okay so hold on an I'm ethical looking. way of being yep which yep. sounds pretty subjective to me yeah oh Even sure but so is professionalism i mean it's all everything we talk about is subjective mm-hmm. um we have the naeyc code of ethical conduct right but even that 
to me falls very short around this topic of love. Yeah. Well, I don't have an easy one size definition of ethics from the book because it's a collection of several essays on the topic of um, care, the ethics of care and feminist um, feminist ethics. So, um, but I think there's a distinction for me between if I'm thinking about um, maybe there isn't. I don't know. I I like Nacy's code for some purposes, like it's mm-hmm. for those for those folks who come into the the field and um, need black and white examples of what we maybe um, shouldn't jump right into. Like I think about one of the things in that code is that we're not going to pick sides with families if there's you know some sort of of family. But I but I have seen so often people in early childhood classrooms who are glad to take sides and will go and testify in custody things and, um, or just, you know, gossip about one over the other. So, so in that way, I think it's very useful, but, but it's also very clinical. And I think what we're talking about in the conversation of professional love and having an ethical disposition to care or to show love or to talk about love, um, that's, it's messier maybe is where I want to land. Um, and, and it's not black and white and it requires, so, and also what I think of as professionalism is having specific knowledge and skills to do what children need to provide what children need. Like I, to base our decisions on what we know about children as a group and children as individuals and the culture we're in. Um, where some people course, think about professionalism as things I can put on your year end review. What's, what's directly right. observable and what can I see? Do you follow dress code? Are you here on time? Um, are you covering your tattoos? All that kind of stuff. So, um, so maybe Grind that acts, maybe that's me. Yeah. Just rambling about, um, because I don't know the answer to your question about ethics, the definition of the ethics. So I'm just going to keep rambling. No, I mean, I, I think that was the, uh, that wasn't it, you oh, know, a or, or a, a, an answer. Okay. And that was awesome. Oh, proud um, of me. Huh? I said, proud of me. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and so I, I guess I'm going to step to the side for a second yeah. and, and sort of uh, raise the question. And, and you did in the, in the last podcast on this one of um, why hasn't love been codified in in NAEYC statements and mm-hmm. in job descriptions and um, state standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this goes directly back to the subject. Uh, you know, this is like my, um, uh, what did you say? Oh, you're, oh, this is, this is like my tattoos topic. Like I always <laughs> have to come back to this topic and find a way to bring it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's patriarchy. That's right. what I was going to say. It's patriarchy. Yes, of course it is. Right. And so that's part of what makes this book so interesting because it's not just ethics, it's feminist ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then that raises the question of, so what's the difference between ethics and feminist ethics? Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, you know, so you said great words just now, right? Oh, Which perfect. is, well, and just to- don't <laughs> Please tell me what, what I said. said and, <laughs> well, and where my mind is at around patriarchy you know, um, so how does the patriarchy influence our profession, right? Mm -hmm. Well, 
men, not that I can speak for 49% of the planet, but um, I'm gonna, because- Okay. Um, my brethren um, like things that are quantifiable. That's mm-hmm. it's one of the words you said. You talked about black, it's not black and white. Men like black and white, like things that can be categorized easily, sorted easily. They don't, we don't tend to live, most people don't tend to live in the gray areas of the spectrum mm-hmm. on any topic, especially in today's world. Mm-hmm. We're, we're rushed to choose either black or white. And that rushing is in the context of a patriarchal society in which men have more power than women. And it's misogynistic in which mm-hmm. women are hated yeah. and vilified. And, right? and men are the measure like you. So even with early feminism, part of the part of our thing that we tried was, well, we have to be more manlike right. to be to be respected. And, and I feel like that's where this new movement of feminist ethics and care ethics is taking us is that these things have been devalued and deprofessionalized because we think of it as being something that comes naturally to women and women are the ones doing most of this work. So, um, so to try and professionalize ourselves, um, we've sort of turned our back on anything that seems like it's a woman thing. And, um, and that's where a lot of our, our ideas of professionalism and ethics come from then is trying to fit what the accepted standard is instead of saying, why is that the accepted standard? (laughs) Right. So the other, you know, the other um, piece of this to get to, to flesh out people's thinking is of course money. Mm -hmm. Um, Our patriarchal society, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that uh, the concept of money was created in a patriarchal society, right? And so it's one of the, I'll say tragedies of our field, right? As you said, we are 99.9% women. Mm-hmm. And yet we are, we as a profession are existing in a framework that does not reflect us. Mm-hmm. And so that framework, you know, so we have to think about things like funding in order to survive yeah but funding streams um in a patriarchal through a patriarchal lens um require quantifiable evidence Mm -hmm. right and so now we find ourselves around the other topic that you and i um rail against which is standardization right so therefore we have to create a set of standards and then we have to find create tools to measure if people are living up to those standards Um, in order for them to get our money. Mm -hmm. And also just to remind people, in our profession, we do have many females in the highest uh, leader levels of leadership in our profession. So I'm not saying, hey, there are no women. I'm saying that, you know, as you know, Heather, but just to say for everyone, uh, in a patriarchal society, even women, um, like you said about the beginnings of feminism, even women, uh, are are enculturated to uh, think in patriarchal ways, mm-hmm. um, and so many of the powerful women that I worked with in D.C. for years and years and years um, have what one could consider patriarchal values. Sure, sort of an right? internalized misogyny. <laughs> That's exactly right, <clears throat> and and they don't know that. Right. 
necessarily. So they just think, oh, okay, yes, quantifiable evidence makes sense. That's what's going to help us be professional. Yeah. And so, yeah. Or we say, yeah, I believe it. That's great. But they're not going to believe it at that table. So we need to make our language match their expectation instead of saying we're bringing expertise to this. <laughs> right. Right. And so not that I'm a fan of any of this and may probably offend someone who's listening, but um, once upon a time we have cr- creative curriculum and. Oh, and it's still out it. there. Still out there. Oh no, I know. But, <laughs> yeah. But in the beginning mm-hmm. um, it was designed right by Diane Trister Dodge yeah. to be open-ended mm-hmm. um, so that people could interpret it in the way they wanted to. Yeah. And that immediately created its biggest set of problems because no one, out there really, I don't know, maybe have the critical thinking skills or the autonomy to step in and go, okay, I'm going to do it this way. And Mm -hmm. everyone wanted specific instructions. And then creative curriculum was different everywhere you went. And there was a lot of people who were misusing it. Yep. And so then we lived through the beginning of data gathering. (laughs) And there I was 22 years ago, um, helping create the first quality rating improvement system for the state of California. Uh, desired results for children and families. And and Diane started to pay attention and say, oh, okay. And uh, now we have teaching strategies gold, mm-hmm. right? Of course, it yep. was also the beginning of, of, the, of the online um, opportunities. Sure. And so now creative curriculum has become something that is theoretically um, quantified viable mm-hmm. and reliable for funders to, to trust. Um, but one of the many reasons you and I don't appreciate standards is because it's almost impossible to be right. objective in this world because of things like love and mm-hmm. our humanity that we bring to early childhood. We're trying to force a, a square peg into a round hole, trying to make early childhood education work in a patriarchal framework. Mm-hmm. So sadly, it's radical to think that love is an ethical disposition. Right. I've been babbling. That's my turn to babble. No, that that's that's right. good. That's um, that's what I was hoping you'd do. Um, so just thinking about, I need to clarify. I, I guess I need clarification from you now. So okay. quote about ethical dispositions, you say boo. Um, but But don't you... Don't you see there's a value, and maybe that's an oversimplification because I know you just talked a lot about why you felt that way. I, I'm, I'm worried that that's an oversimplification of, um, well, it's not, how do I want to say this? It's not perfect, so it's a bad idea because ultimately we wouldn't even be having this conversation because, um, but we're having it because of patriarchy. So it's all bad instead of, I maybe that's not making any sense. Well, it wasn't my intention to oversimplify it. Yeah. It was my intention to lay a foundation for the rest of the conversation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because you're right. We couldn't end there. Yeah. But I'm still not sure I'm fully getting the point you're trying to bring out. So maybe. Well, yeah. So, so maybe, you know, I just said we, we go to these tables of people who aren't in early childhood or whatever. Right. And we feel like we need to, um, change our language to meet their expectations. Um, I mean, I think there are times when we need to see, look at who our audience is. 
but we have to do that with integrity. So if we're changing ourselves or hiding ourselves or betraying child development to meet the expectations of the people we're trying to convince, that's different. But if we can kind of see, well, what is important to them and how can I talk about what I believe in, what I believe children need in some of the language of the wolves, as Lisa would say, but I'm not changing my belief or I'm not changing how I'm going to act with children. I'm still going to advocate um, for, for love or whatever, but I'm going to use this, this language of ethical dis- dispositions. And maybe that grabs somebody who would be turned off by me just saying, I think love's very important in early childhood. Um, and if instead we say to someone, we feel like that won't work with, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about ethical practice. And that means to me, knowing what children need and providing that. Um, and one of the things they need is a relationship and, um, that can't be had without love. So, uh, so we're going to talk about love in early childhood and that's why instead of just going in and saying, well, I think it's very important to, to have love in these programs. And, um, if you don't agree, you can do the other thing. Uh, hmm. Well, I mean, I think that we have people in our field that uh, that gravitate toward both of the uh, ways you just described. Sure, absolutely. And, and we need all of them. I, there's not one right way to transform our profession, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but but it's always going to be a struggle trying to you know, putting aside men and patriarchy, just talking about okay. um, our dependence on quantifiable sure. evidence, Yeah, right? Putting yeah. aside, pondering why that might be a value, but. Okay. So it's, it's a tricky, it's just a tricky line to walk to. Um, well, yeah. I mean, so what I was going to just say was if we are saying that, um, Again, I haven't read this full book, but it, yeah. if I'm guessing <clears throat> that part of feminist ethics would be um, valuing qualitative um, outcomes and data, but we are in a profession that requires us to produce quantitative data, mm-hmm. um, then are we, are we salmon swimming upstream? How do we transform Probably. the profession? I mean, we are salmon strip streaming upstream, swimming yeah. upstream. Um, but I don't know that that means we don't swim upstream. Like, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's just, I think we all need to be really clear about the stream we're in. So we understand. <laughs> we're really grabbing onto this metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so. 10 or 12 years ago, um, you know, so this, sorry, let me start again. Mm-hmm. This, this topic is um, really at the, the heart of why I'm in this profession and what's most important to me in the world and, and, and in um, taking care of young children and, and just everything I'm about as a professional and mm-hmm. as a person. Um, so I'm going to just real quickly kind of just say this, which is I don't subscribe to any religion. I'm not a person of faith in any of the ways that um, sort of mainstream society defines those things. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I do believe in a greater power. And if I had to name that power with a noun, I would call it love. Mm. Um, and so, so my sort of spiritual background is all about um, me being a conduit for that energy. I want to let it pass through me to the people I'm around. And I want to be able to receive it when it's coming my way. And I feel like if I've done that, then my time on planet Earth was well spent. Um, that sounds really nice. But then when you go to apply it in real life, <laughs> it becomes really complicated. Yeah. Um, and that's part of why um, organizations in our profession, I think, have avoided that the L word yeah. uh, in this context, love, um, because it, it's, it's so uh, diversely interpreted and um, unquantifiable mm-hmm. that it's difficult to, <clears throat> to create a standard um, that we can all aspire to. Or, or be evaluated on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so about 10 or 12 years ago, I created a, a keynote in a workshop called What's Love Got to Do With This? The Role of Love in a Professional Early Childhood. Oh. Setting. Yeah, and I've been doing nice. it ever since. Yeah. Um, and there was nothing out there at that time. I scoured every NAEYC material. Yeah. The closest I could find was the phrase, um, the teacher encourages pro-social behaviors. Yeah, pro-social behaviors. Right. Bite like me. love equals not <laughs> killing other people. Or yeah. Yeah, well, I, this book is Canadian, it. so, you, <laughs> so you, you wouldn't have come across it in any of the days and stuff. So we talked about, so I would facilitate the audience in talking about why is that? And we'd, mm-hmm. we'd come to patriarchy and quantifiableness mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. Um and we kind of explore for different people what, how do you even define that word love? Or more importantly, what, how do you know it when you see it? Mm-hmm. Because if we're working with young children, you know, they are generally concrete thinkers, tangible people who rely on our behaviors more so than our words. Uh-huh. So what does love look like as a behavior? And that really led to some really great conversations. Yeah where I could say to them, okay, so you are being loving. Um, I would have them close their eyes and think back to a time when they were little and they felt that they were with someone who loved them. Mm-hmm. And then how did they behave? What did they do or say or not do or not say that your little mind interpreted as love? Mm-hmm. And so times with audiences and there would be words like, um, courage, patience, in so but earlier you were talking about, um, you know, do we, I don't know exactly how you said it, but you said there were two ways we could go about it, right? Yeah. And, and one of them was more um, furtive, more secretive, yeah. kind of like not strategic. Strategic. That's a, that's a, that's another great word in our field. Um, and so, at that time, that's kind of what we came to in those facilitated discussions, which is, hey, look, we this word love doesn't show up in your job description. It's not in any 
standard, but let's just look at the ways you are being loving with little kids Mm -hmm. and just know that that's what you're being. Mm -hmm. Like we can't say the word, but go ahead and be it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that showed up for them as words like, as I was saying a moment ago, I don't know if it was got recorded. Um, (laughs) These were words from audience members over, over many, many years. They would come up with words like the person when I was little, the person who I thought of as loving was strong. They were courageous. They were patient. They were kind. They spoke softly to me. Um, And so I found that to be helpful whether it was furtive or not, it was helpful because, because we are in a profession that, that we do need to be thinking about um, um, what's showing up on the surface, our behaviors. Mm-hmm. How does it look? It's at least for people new to the field, how am I behaving around young people is a place to start. Mm-hmm. So you can think that what you're doing is loving And one way you could do that is by getting down to children's levels and remembering their names and remembering unique things about them so that you can recall them in, you know, and facilitate their experiences in ways that are individualized, that love and caring is what um, is the source for your ability to do that well. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was just thinking too about um, before, and, and you sort of started in this direction that we need to find out what people in the field thinks love looks like in the, in the work or, or what they feel like is, um, acceptable or how it manifests in physical, uh, practice or, or actual right. policy. And I think about things like, um, and I was just sort of talking about this with one of my classes this week, um, like physical touch policies in early childhood programs where you can't have a child on your lap. You can't give a child a hug. You um, uh, don't cross any boundaries with families, you know, to keep it all in the classroom and, you know, social media policies about being friends with families on, you know, the different um, platforms. And I think that fits in here too. Um, But I, but so I think that there's part of me that just always thinks, and I think this is true about play or care or love or whatever the topic is, children should get good things just because they're human beings who deserve good things. Like we should be um, allowing them to play because we know that's when children are happiest (laughs) or, um, you know, we should, we should focus on uh, just having a relationship with them because that's what humanity <laughs> is, but that doesn't sell that, you know, those, those other folks who need the standardization or the measurement that doesn't sell. So then research comes along like, um, uh, Oh, I can't think of who wrote the essential touch book that really pointed out that there are ramifications to not oh, Razzleton. No, I mean, touch points. points, Yeah. This is, this is a woman. um, I don't remember anyway. um, So we, we know now that we have something sort of measurable for those things we associate with love being unprofessional. Um, You know, we know now that children can um, it can impact brain development. It can impact their, um, their identity development. 
if we are cold and clinical rather than human and loving and caring um, and with consent, offering physical contact, you know, whether that's a hug or a lap or a shoulder rub or something like that, or just a little hand on the head while you're walking by. Um, so I, I feel like that's what, what stood out for me about this, the quote specifically that we started with is that it's, it's doing that it's taking what we think children deserve, but we have to quantify it somehow for the audience that needs to get on board for things to change. And so we can talk about ethics, even though it should just be something that's natural. It should just be something that we all accept children deserve. Um, for some people, they just need that little extra, um, validation maybe. Um, right. Right. Well, a couple thoughts come to mind. Uh-huh. I don't want to interrupt you though. You- no, you weren't. <laughs> um, one, I guess I want to just remind us that, um, it's been my experience anyway, that our fee- our field tends to attract, um, many people who have trauma in their own childhoods. Yeah. Um, and so one thing we know about trauma is it, um, it, re, it, can, it can rewire schemas in our mind, mm-hmm. like what is love? Mm-hmm. So you have people who wanna be loving, but the experience they pull from is one of abuse sure. or neglect. Sure. And so that's one of the reasons I suppose why it needs to be quantifiable because we can't necessarily rely on every member of our profession to, um, to know how to love effectively someone Mm -hmm. else's child in a way that won't hurt them. And I feel like some of those, those policies feed that. Like if we say um, you shouldn't have children in your lap, that's feeding that idea. It's feeding what idea? that, that confuses that, that person coming in who's had, you know, maybe abuse or um, has grown up thinking that love looks like being yelled at um, and, or that love looks like um, being abused by someone I should be able to trust. And then we come in with this policy that says, yep, you're right. Kids shouldn't be on your lap. Then that feeds it. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's, that's really disturbing. Yeah, that, that I, thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, I'm glad you said it. I mm-hmm. just that expands my thinking. I hadn't, okay, all right. I hadn't thought of it in such a like disturbing way that we're literally. I mean, I think what I heard you say is that our policies can literally um, um, amplify um, the opposite of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I hadn't thought of it in that way before. Mm-hmm. The other thing I thought of when you were speaking earlier is you know, you were talking about quantifiable and and needing to measure for those others. And I was sitting here thinking, okay, but why do we even value quantifiableness and measuring? Like, because of the money we need. Right. Right. Yeah. But you know, when I was a young, when I started out in this field, which was in the mid eighties, for me anyway, um, early childhood education was an art and now it is firmly in the realm of science. Mm which I would also suggest is, is male oriented Mm -hmm. to value science over art. Mm -hmm. Um, No wonder our art programs are all getting defunded. 
um, when it are, when it is generally men who are controlling the funding streams. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time when taking care of young children was was a matter of the heart and a matter and a expression of creative love, but all of that has kind of gotten lost in the need to quantify and measure. Mm -hmm. And that's really scary and disturbing to me as well. Yeah. Um, I, I just was sort of flipping through the the essay that that quote, this quote comes from, and um, maybe this is going against some of the things I just said about quantifying, but I think both can exist. Both ideas can exist. Okay. Um, but here he says, it's therefore quite possible to act in a way that is ethically correct, but to be impatient, judgmental, unkind, and selfish. Um, yep. So... I guess that's just another level of thinking that we have to work through. Um, yes, we can, we can add value to the argument for love being a professional um, ethical disposition, and, but also acknowledge that um, we, it, it can't just be a list of ethics that, that guides us. It has to be critical thinking and, um, this may be an ethically correct thing to do, but how does it feel to the child to be on the receiving end of whatever that practice might be? And to me, uh, you just made a real, to me, you made a really great point. And where it went, sent my mind was back to the other idea that we always come back to in these podcasts, <laughs> which is relationships mm -hmm. and relationship-based learning, right. social learning theory, right? right. Process so over product. To, say it again. <laughs> Process, Process over, over product. product. Right. Mm -hmm. So the way to uh, uh, for me to build my skills as a loving professional um, is to engage in relationships with the children and families and co-workers uh, around me and my boss and all that. Um, that's what's going to illuminate for me where my history tells me, you know, where, where I'm able to see my blind spots. You know, I thought I was being ethical. Uh, while I was being selfish, but mm. by being in a relationship with other people, I can see that selfishness that I hadn't even realized was there for me and how it impacts others. Mm -hmm. You know, we, it's difficult to have the conversation about love without remembering that it's always, it's like the tree falling in the, in the forest, right? Mm -hmm. Without someone else there to give and receive love with, it's just an idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huh. <laughs> what else? Because um, I know that you, I know that you, when we first started talking about this, doing a part two on this topic, you had, um, you had strong feelings about some of the things we said in the first round. Are there more things? Is there more that you wanted to, to get to? Well, one of the conversations that came up in that one that I remembered was, is it okay to tell children I love you? Yeah. And then you all kind of got into the difference between love and like. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the people on the podcast said, um, yeah, maybe it's okay to say I love your artwork, but not I love you. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that one, that, that one hurt um, because of my, you know, sort of my spiritual orientation that I explained earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I say I love you to kids yeah. and people all the time. Yeah, and I think too. it's much more meaningful neurologically and otherwise 
um, for me to say, I love you, then I love that drawing of a horse that you made. Um, <laughs> if my goal is to help children feel safe and secure and um, valuable, I love you. I don't think there's any more powerful statement than that. Yeah. But I need to also make sure, going back to behaviors, that um, my money is where my mouth is. Mm-hmm. I can't say I love you and then yell at all the kids because what message is that sending yeah. out love? Yeah. But I just or, or scold them all day. I love you, but I wish you would change everything about you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone on that podcast ended on, we shouldn't say, I love you. I think that was just talking about their own evolution of thinking. Hmm. If I remember it right. Maybe I remember it. Different. Maybe I yeah. fell asleep before it was over. I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, uh, I do that too. And I, I see that there are looks, you know, people will, um, look funny at me if I'm telling a child I love them or um, just being that explicit in it. But that's, that's authentic. It's not, I'm not faking. I'm not, you know, I, that's how I feel. And I don't think we can spend, and I think Carol says this, I don't think we can spend our whole days, our whole career with a group of young children and not, you know, caring for them, taking, you know, meeting their needs and caring for them and playing with them and in listening to them without falling in love. It, right. It, you know, that would be a very, I think, sad place to be. <laughs> to, but it's it, what a lot of people strive for. Yeah. So it, because that word love does not, is does not get talked about. It right? doesn't show up. It, right. There's no, um, there's no official permission mm-hmm. to love in our, in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some people who avoid that. Or because again, for whatever reasons in their own past, they're scared to love and lose. Yeah. Um, man, the end of every school year for me destroyed me. Yeah. And if there, I just, year after year, the dads would be like, the dads, but what's wrong with you, Richard? Uh, you don't understand. Yeah. I love yeah. Your kids so much. Yeah. I'm just going to be sorry to say goodbye. <laughs> um, and the only, you know, it's just time and practice that has allowed me to learn the skill of um, loving and letting go, mm-hmm. which is a key part, I think, of being in this profession mm-hmm. that we never officially talk about. Um, and on the other side, I also w- want to mention, um, in response to your invitations of things that I heard in the last one, <laughs> is a, the subject of attachment. Uh-huh. And so love is deeply related to the, the goal of giving young children um, a sense of attachment in the world mm-hmm. to build a sense of security and ultimately independence and all of those things, right? Um, but I've worked, I, I've connected with some of our fellow professionals, um, uh, like professors at Erickson Institute, who say, you should not say, I love you to children. Mm -hmm. Your goal should not be attachment because uh, human mind, well, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting (laughs) theory. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. (laughs) Because the human mind is not designed to attach and detach and attach and Mm -hmm. detach. You're meant to have one primary attachment that in order to have that sense of security in the best of ways that carries you through life. But we, now we find ourselves in a world where childcare is, um, is a necessity. Yeah. And so the nature of attaching to one person 
Now, so when I was a director of a center, I immediately changed it to to looping so that they would stay with the same teacher for three years in a row. But that's still in our field. Mm -hmm. And so young children attach and detach and attach and detach year after year. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we yet have full research on the impact of that. Yeah. So, yeah, two things come to mind there. I would want to see the research they're basing that on. Um, because it, to me, that sounds very Western centric, very, very Eurocentric that they only need one primary attachment and that should get them through. I don't know. Oh, well, that's a good point. It yeah. does, in other words, the, the interdependence that's valued in other cultures right. doesn't show up in the statement that right. I just made. Right. Hmm. The village okay. concept. All right. Um, and you said there was a second thing. Oh, it was both of them. I'd want to see the okay. research and this sounds that way to me sounds so it was it was two things presented as one thing but really it was two things but you know when i think about families and cultures that i've been a part of or witness to or whatever that aren't just one person you know um it's a set of moms and aunties and uncles and dads and all those and you're with those same you're in that same familial community throughout your whole childhood mm-hmm. and that's different than sequential attachment sure yeah which is t- what tends to happen in our world of child care yeah or there's also the risk of never attaching because of the turnover <laughs> if you right. make it that full year with the same group of children and and uh adults that's that's rare i think in a lot of programs right because of turnover so yeah that's a whole other uh reading assignment and conversation. Right. And that's why I prefer to think of it as an art and a human endeavor and not mm-hmm. a science. Yeah. I think it's possible. Not only is it possible to over quantify everything, <laughs> um, it's also possible to, um, um, I already forgot what I was going to say, to um, overthink everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, whether it's young children or anyone, I'd rather walk through life. Um, um, being loving, connecting with my instinct about what this person needs in this moment mm-hmm. and not trying to overthink um, what the ethical standard is, what the book that I read says I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a hole we've fallen oh, in as a profession. Yeah. So I'm thinking now as, as a college teacher, um, a lot of the students that I work with have, you know, already been in a program that doesn't look like what I'm telling them, or will go out into a program that doesn't look like what I'm telling them um, we should be striving for, or could be striving for. Um, And I think in that, I mean, I think that's another example of, I can, I can tell my passionate stories about love in my career. I can show photos, you know, to sort of connect it. But when, when I know they're going to go out into a program that says, um, you must be cold and professional and clinical at all times. I, they may have that and be like, oh, but that's just Heather, but they could also have, but here's what science says to back up what I'm telling you. So I, right. I, I agree that we can't look at it as only a science, but I think there are places where what science is telling us now and really validating what we've been doing instinctively for so long. Um, is a good thing. And that's, that's why I get all nerdy and excited about it. Right. No, absolutely. And yeah. I agree. You know, it's why we early childhood 
professionals love neurologists because yeah. they've been telling us all, yes. hey, what you've been saying all along is right. Good job, guys. Grandmas were right. Yeah. What do you know? The women were doing it right. Right all along. <laughs> um, but we needed the neurologists to verify it yeah. so that the people with the purse strings yeah. could listen to them. Yeah. So maybe we're, I'm just saying the same thing soon. over and over. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. science, science to me is meant um, to be used in the service. It's a means to an end. It's mm-hmm. not the end. Right, right, right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Since I started uh, the podcast with yay science, we better end it with, did we? <laughs> well, when I was talking about chemo. <clears throat> okay. Well, then maybe this is a good time. To... Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll just wrap it up. Yay science and okay yay science. <laughs> Go love. <laughs> Go love. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Richard, for, for that conversation. I, um, You're welcome. Uh, oh, and Heather? Yes, Richard? I love you. Oh, I love you. That's so nice. Thanks. Yeah. And Aww. it's true. Right? And we've never even met in person. I know. Isn't so that amazing? There, there, for your listeners, there's a living example of love. That's Two right. people never even met, and somehow you have that feeling for right. each other. What if we meet in person and we're like, ooh, I didn't know that's what you were really like. I would probably hate you. <laughs> no, I'm very, very lovable. Oh, that's not what I heard. All right. <laughs> well, all right. Well, I have my inner circle then. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, even when it got weird there for a minute. Uh, I appreciate you sticking with us. Come back again for another episode. And um, that's it for now. Bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.